one mic, one voice. You can change the world, it's your choice. One mic, one voice. You can change the world, it's your choice. One mic, one voice. You can change the world, it's your choice. One mic, one voice. Well, good evening. Thank you so much for being here, Lanx University. Oklahoma City welcomes you. We're delighted that you have decided to join us tonight. I am Matra Jones, Vice President for Institutional Advancement and External Affairs. I am also the Site Administrator for LUOKC. Again, welcome. We're gonna dive right in and I'm going to share a little bit about the folks who are joining us tonight. We're gonna simply have a conversation between two people, two leaders in this community. First up, Barrett Harris. She is the rabbi at Temple B'nai Israel. Temple B'nai Israel was founded in 1903, and Rabbi Harris is only the fifth rabbi to serve the congregation in its 116 years. The temple focuses on Jewish life in Oklahoma City, particularly in the areas of religious learning, prayer, and outreach to the community. Michael Eric Owens is founder and executive director of the Ralph Ellison Foundation. He is an author, historian, sought-after speaker, and an advocate for the empowerment of minority communities throughout the United States. Michael is also the host of the One Mic, One Voice podcast, where in another few days, you will be able to hear this evening's program and share it with friends. So tonight's about sacred listening, a dialogue intensive between two communities. We're going to dive right in. And the first question, what labels do you have? Which ones do you like? Which ones do you not like? How do you prefer to identify yourself? Um, labels. Um, I mean, as a, and understand, I'm, I'm speaking uh, through the prism of a black man, um, through the eyes of a man that grew up in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 53206 is one of the poorest zip codes in the United States. 67% of all black males go to prison one time or another. So that is my perspective, the lens in which I, I look at this question and the labels in which people have applied to me. Again, I like, Rabbi, how you gave that caveat that we're not speaking for entire communities. But the labels that have been given to me, uh, well, I'm not black enough, I got green eyes, right? Um, how about the label that I'm not from here, I don't understand. Um, the stigma that those label, labels bring along with them too as well. Uh, I'm in a category of all black males, regardless of my education, regardless of my success. Uh, at the end of the day, I could have said it, but at the end of the day, um, I'm just an end to a lot of people. That's just the truth for the matter. And so these labels uh, in which have negative connotation, walk around with, with me as, as clothing, right? Because uh, the labels don't come from within, they come from without. Now, the labels I place on myself are very, are very few because nobody's listening to those labels. <laughs> if I say I'm a good man, right, I'm a good father, um, if I say I'm a good citizen, those fly into the labels, in the face of the labels out there that characterize me as not being. So the reality 
is um, we can't shake these labels. Um, they are our reality. We don't control them, uh, but we cannot let them control us. Michael, I have a question about that. When you talk about the labels that are put on you in the community that you came from, I know that you've lived in lots of different places and served in the Navy, if I remember correctly. Correct. Yeah? So in the different communities where you've lived, what have you seen or experienced to be places where maybe you have felt safe from labels that box you in or put you down? Where are places where you have felt it doesn't matter what labels other people are putting on me, I'm just here, I'm just me? Well, that's a very good question because I would, I would say that nowhere in the United States have I been where labels have not been an issue. I lived in Scotland for a couple of years where labels seemed to disappear. Um, but again, I was a minority among the minority there. Um, I don't think, and again, I'm, I'm speaking my own experience and, and people disagree with me all the time, so I have no problem with that. Um, but me as a black man living in America, um, labels have always played a role in whenever I walk into a room, right? Whenever I join a, a new organization, uh, whenever I am turned down for something, is it because of what? The mind naturally goes to the labels, right? My son is, uh, matter of fact, just got hired uh, he's going to be taking a, a position in Japan. And he was an OU student who went over there and, and uh, studied abroad for a couple of years. And, and, he, and, and I said to him, I said, you, you really love Japan. He said, well, Dad, I don't feel black in Japan. He said, matter of fact, I'm, I'm almost celebrated. <laughs> he said, people really respect me. That's how I felt. But here in the United States, that's not the case. And it's, it's, it, that reality is true. I mean, you know, you can tell me I'm lying. I'm okay with that. But I'm talking about my experience. Right? And, uh, and I think a lot of people don't understand because although I'm not speaking for every black man, I can guarantee you that some brothers in here nodding their head because they understand what I'm saying. And so a lot of people don't even understand that psychological trauma that we are dealing with each and every day of our lives. But yet, and still, we persevere. Thank you. Rabbi, labels. What labels do you have? Which ones do you like? Which ones do you not like? And how do you prefer to identify yourself? So... I identify myself as a Jewish woman. Um, and my experience with, I guess, the label of being Jewish, and we talked a little bit before about labels or what other people put on you as opposed to how you identify yourself. It, for me, it's been really different in different places where I've lived. So, or I guess in different communities where I've interacted. So at different times in my life where I've been in 
relationships and communities with people where phrase where it being Jewish is used kind of oh you know don't Jew them down or don't be a Jew those kinds of things where it's specifically derogatory but for instance when I was in middle school and that was kind of a thing and those were some of the phrases that were thrown around I didn't have any context for it I didn't really know what it was, and I didn't know to be offended about, by it until I repeated it to my mother, who let me know very clearly that that was not okay. Um, and then it's a different experience sometimes here in Oklahoma, where when people find out that I'm Jewish, it's sort of, you are? Oh, I've never met a Jewish person before. Like, people get kind of excited by it. Um, in a different way. So it just has really varied. Right now with the rise in anti-Semitic hate crimes really around the world, sometimes I think twice about how identified you know, I am, but at the same time, it's only a label that people put on me through conversation, not when I walk in a room. I mean, that's, that's really interesting that I've, I've always, since we met, I've always wondered how you navigated those two worlds. Because as you have mentioned, and, and so many of other, our Jewish brothers and sisters, Mike, and, and others have mentioned this, this idea that unless I say that I'm Jewish, a lot of people don't even think twice about it. So talk a little bit about how you how do you navigate that world when there's a there's a label placed on you that is and you know it's probably not correct, but how do you deal with that um, that transition to saying no, there's a different label here? You mean like if somebody just assumes that I'm Christian, for instance, or 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 white? Oh instance. God, yeah, that label. That is so complicated. That is so complicated. Um, so yeah, I, I can remember even before all of the conversation that's more contemporary about when did Jewish people become white anyway, which of course being Jewish is not you, it's not exclusive to people of European descent to begin with, so that already is complicated. But long before that was a thing, I can remember filling out those forms and going, well, I don't know what box I'm supposed to check because those are all the people that wanted to kill me, you know? <laughs> or my PR did kill my family not that long ago. So how does, because I was different and I wasn't them, and it's not just a faith and it's not just a religion, it's very complicated. Um, but I don't think that that comes up very often. When people make kind of the categorizations of what it means to be white, I carry white privilege because of the way that I look. And for people who hold up the idea of the Jewish people as special in some way to God because of their theological belief, not because of mine necessarily, then whiteness doesn't even come into play because they're already putting me on a pedestal that I haven't earned. But then you've got the flip side of that, which are the people who take the Jewish people and 
kind of put us as totally other and no privilege comes with that at all. I don't know how I navigate it. I don't even know that I think about it. I think that for the most part, I'm in a space and a time where I don't hesitate to let people know that I'm Jewish and the piece of race that may or may not come out in that conversation, I think mostly just doesn't come out. But I have to think about that more. Why do you care about conversation between the black, African-American, and Jewish communities? Michael, do you want to explain the difficulty that we had in how to label, quote unquote, the communities? Um, the black or African-American community, are you talking about I that am. that label? Well, I wrote a book called Yes, I Am Who I Am, A New Philosophy of Black Identity. So I wrote a whole book on it, but I will, uh, I will give you a synopsis. Um, if you do any survey, uh, the latest survey out there, 52% of quote unquote uh, people that look like me uh, prefer the term black. 48% prefer African American. My argument, and, and I make people upset when I, when I lay this argument out, but it's kind of true in, in my view. Um, Africa is a continent, not a country. And when you talk about identity, you're talking about who I am and how do I fit in a given society, group, culture, so forth. And on a con I spent six months on the continent, so I'm not, I'm, I'm not just you know, talking out the side of my neck. So, um, and uh, Africa is 54 countries, thousands of languages, and thousands of tribes. Africans do not identify themselves by their country nor their tribe, but their clan. There could be nine clans within every tribe. So if I say I'm an African-American, I say that what? What does it tell me about identity? Right? If I said I'm Italian-American, there's an Italy, there's a language, there's a culture, there's so forth. John Kerry's wife is from Africa. She is an African-American. I'm just, you guys ask me to lay out the argument, so y'all looking at me like I'm crazy. But, <laughs> but no, so that's, so, so that's, that's, um, but I understand the other side of the argument too, because as, and this, this whole African-American movement didn't start until um, Jesse Jackson ran for president. He was doing quite well. They had this meeting and he, he talked about how they needed a more uh, name that spoke more to the world, a sort of cultural sort of sense. And then they came up with African-Americans. So uh, the reason why I prefer black, uh, black is not a color, number one. Uh, but number two, it has no hue, so it's not a color. But I, I go back to the black power movement when uh, blacks began to uh, internalize their beauty, their talent, their grace, their gifts. Uh, James Brown, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. And so I believe that it is within that time frame where black people start looking outward for uh, the approval and started looking inward for the approval of who they are and what they are. So that's my argument when it comes to that. Uh, you can get the book for uh, $16.99, and uh, <laughs> it goes more into depth. <laughs> Selfish plug. Um, why do you care about the conversation okay. between the black, African-American, and Jewish communities? I would like for you yeah. to share, and then we'll... Yeah, yeah. and then we'll, we'll take a quick break. But I, I will say that um, we have such a rich history together. I mean, we saw um, from... Um, was it uh, uh, the, the Rosenwald film together? 
with all the schools being built uh, for uh, minority children from uh, Swastika to Jim Crow. Uh, I, there is such a rich history of involvement, engagement that, and I think a lot of us, um, number one, don't know that history and it's lost. And given the challenges that we face as minority people, we can only face them together in unity. And we have, we have similar experiences historically, um, whether it's the Holocaust, whether it's slavery, it's the, it's the loss of the family, the heartache that we've been through as two communities. We, in my opinion, um, are two sides of the same coin. And it is my desire to see us come together in such a way that not only honors that history of those who came before us, but also to forge a future together that is, I think, respectful and honoring of their sacrifices. And I agree with all of that. The vulnerable communities coming together, I think we're much stronger together. And living in silos and apart from each other is not helpful to the future of this, of this country, never mind our individual futures. Michael, you said when you were talking about black African-American and you said African-American, what does that say? What does that mean? Or what do you hear? And what I hear in that phrase, where my mind went when you asked the question, is I hear my ancestors were slaves and forced to come here. And there's, to me, I don't feel like I was raised with very much conversation around that historical reality and about the generational trauma that ensues because of because of trauma, because of what we know about what that means. I was at an event um, last week where a speaker talked to a diverse audience that when you get the opportunity to go and walk where your ancestors walked, you need to take it and you need to go and be there. And I was sitting at a table with um, three or four people from the African-American community and after the speaker was done, I was embarrassed because, and I said something along the lines of, what do you hear when you hear that? And they said, yeah, well, we can't do that. We can't go back more than three or four generations. I mean, four generations already is a tremendous amount. So that's what I hear when I hear that. And to me, the conversation is really important because dignity for all people is really important to me. And there's a level of the Jewish story being ignored in certain areas of the world that we live in and I recognize that there I have a large amount of ignorance of other people's stories and of the black African-American community's story and I think that the world is better when we hear each other's stories and we care about each other. Hey, this is Jamie Lindbergh, host of Upbeat Urbanism, a podcast where we seek to have an open dialogue about what it takes to create healthy, intentional, sustainable communities, one conversation at a time. Each episode is an interview with a city planner, leader, developer, real estate professional, or community builder. To listen, search for Upbeat Urbanism wherever you find podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at uurbanism. 
and on Facebook at Upbeat Urbanism. Devote yourself to your community around you and devote yourself to creating something that gives you purpose and meaning. Until then, keep it upbeat. This is Dr. Laura Gelat, and when I listen to podcasts, I always listen to the One Mic, One Voice show. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back to the One Mic, One Voice show. We are at Langston. We're having a great discussion, and... um, I've noticed that y'all are awfully quiet out there. And I'm wondering, is it just that deep or is it thought provoking? You know, the old, the, old, uh, the old pastor used to say when the, when the congregation get quiet, conviction has failed. So I don't, <laughs> but okay, we are back. Okay. Now there's a cultural difference right there. <laughs> We're going we're gonna to keep moving so we can stay on time. Um, so I, I do have a question, um, and this is, this may strike a chord, but what keeps you up at night? You know, this is a question I think me and Rabbi have been tossing around for several years now. Um, and it's, it's, a, um, it's a sad question to answer because I don't think good things keep people up at night. I think it's the things that trouble us the most. And I think living in a country where we're so divided and um, with the guy that just uh, was on the Northeast side with the AR-15 walking around, um, what keeps me up at night is I really don't know what tomorrow might bring. Sometime I get in my car, I'm leaving a meeting. I don't even know if I'll make it home. I never thought as an adult I would ever even have those, those types of um, things running through my mind. But I don't, I, I, I worry about, it's not a fear. I, don't, I do not live in fear. I, I, you know, I'm, I have no fear of no man or no woman. But it's a reality that when I see people like me, lives being cut short and lives being um, spoken of with no value, that keeps me up at night. When I think about um, our communities and the division and the vitriol that's being spoken from the highest offices of our land, that keeps me up at night because I realize that's resonating with our children. And for me, I have come to the conclusion um, that I might not see a different America. And that keeps me up at night because I want to see a different country. I want to see unity. I want to see harmony. I want to see people come together. But when I lay my head down at night, I realize that's probably a fool's dream given the conditions that we're living in. So there's personal things that keep me up at night, but there's also national 
things that, that plague my heart. So those national things that you're talking about, those actually don't keep me up at night. Um, I honestly, what keeps me up at night are the things that are within my circle of influence. And I don't feel like there are a lot of things, well, that big that are within my circle of influence. Why? What keeps me up at night is worrying about my children. For sure, that keeps me up at night. And because I'm the mother of daughters, for me, that ranges from sexual assault to I have maybe an overactive imagination, but what, what will I do if something happens to my daughter who lives in California and how quickly can I get there and if there's a car accident, who's gonna let me know? Like those kinds of things. And I worry about, with all due respect to the congregants who are in the room, what did I do today? What am I doing tomorrow that I'm gonna let people down? And that keeps me up at night. Where am I failing? In the things that are within my circle of influence. And I think probably about, well, probably pretty close to three years ago, I started working personally on the idea of there are a lot of things that I'm not going to be able to change and influence. And I've retracted into myself a lot into who am I going to see? How can I be present in just that moment? Because whatever happens in the moment after that, if I, somewhere else, I can't, I, I can't do all of that. And if I let myself start worrying or thinking about the cascading effects of, for instance, anti-Semitism, racism, anti-LGBTQ plus issues, uh, misogyny. Misogyny keeps me up at night. If, if I let myself do, go there, it's a domino effect. I would never sleep. I mean, it's interesting because um, while you were talking, um, I was reminded of a conversation that I had about Ferguson. And a gentleman has said to me, why are they rioting? And I shared with him that, uh, as King said, riots are the voice of the unheard. But I also said, um, for black people, let me just say that, and, and maybe I'm, I'm not trying to infer this to all of us, but it's all connected. He saw that as, as a single incident. And I said it's all connected, all the way back to slavery. And whenever it happens in a community, it's extremely personal for each and every one of us. We can't look away. That it is a Whatever the is incident, the injustice. The injustice. Um, because the injustice is long and it's historical. Mm -hmm. So it's hard for me to have the perspective of, I can't think about those national things because they are very much connected to me, into my history. And the reason why that black boy was treated like that is because so many of us are devalued and have been treated like that throughout history. And then the knowledge that the fact that he was treated like that means that, of course, 
I can be treated like that. So there's no disconnect um, for me from those um, situations. They impact me, whether it happens uh, in Milwaukee or Chicago or Ferguson or D.C. It, it's, it doesn't matter. It is, it is happening to me. So is there space or place for the grief and the mourning that comes with that, the sadness? I mean, it's too frequent. You don't have time to, to grieve and to put it aside because it, it happens so rapidly. And I think about what we're approaching in 1921 with the commemoration of the Tulsa Massacre and how when we did a light bulb room in Tulsa, how I left Tulsa so heavy because those people with a resounding voice said, this happened to us. And so there is no lull in the storm. I wish there was. I mean, I don't want to have to think about these things or um, have these things keep me up at night. I don't want to, uh, I don't even want to have to write about these things. But if I want, who will? And I think um, for some, you know, I don't want to paint a picture that my life is, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> I'm just sharing with you the weight in which is upon my shoulders. I'm thankful to be black. I love being black. Uh, I like my eyes, my hair, my nose, my lips. There's nothing wrong with, with who I am. Um, but I cannot deny um, what I am situated in the midst of. And that is a country that was created. That was created in oppression. And almost genocide. Right. And when we have someone in the highest office saying, let's make this country great again. And I say, when was that? Was it in the 50s? When we couldn't drink at the same fountain. Was it in the 60s when y'all was burning us up in buses? Let's even go a little far back. Was it in convict leasing when, when slavery was over and y'all chained us up? So when was America great? I, was in the, I always have to say this. I was in the Navy for 13 years. Served my country. I'm not hating on America. But I'm speaking the truth about our experiences. And so, no, Rabbi, it's, 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 it's hard for me to disconnect from those realities. Uh, knowing that when I leave here, would anybody be shocked? Well, let me back up. Would anybody black be shocked if I left here and didn't make it home? Y'all be sad, I hope. But you wouldn't be shocked. Terrence Crutcher in Tulsa. So, no, these are realities that we deal with each and every day. And so that's, I guess, my... Answer, Rabbi. 
I feel compelled to weigh in when you talk about what keeps you up at night. Um, so just give me a few moments to do that. So I've heard you, Michael, I've heard you, Rabbi, and for me it's a combination of what you're both talking about. As a mother, I worry about my two sons who ask me a lot of questions about race. They, they, they're starting to figure out that they're different. I have to talk to my babies that you can't hold somebody's hand at your school, you can't hug a little girl at your school. Um, the little girls that, you know, my, my daughter would come home and say, mommy, mommy, Brendan's little friends are giving them hugs and giving them kisses, and I say, baby, don't allow that. And, and I wish I could not have to shield my four-year-old from that, but in the world that we live in, and, and my reality is that something could happen if a parent looked at my sweet four-year-old because people perverse things. At that age, they're not thinking about the way that we think about stuff or that people who were more older or mature. So I think about those things. I think about my daughter. Um, I think about just being an executive and misogyny and how that plays out. And being one of, um, you know, being a female in higher education administration and the different positions that I hold within the community, making sure that my professional stance is always at 100. I don't get to not, um, you know, act a certain way. I think about my husband's profession, who's a federal judge, and how I'm always being looked at. We're always being looked at. So I feel like the lens of scrutiny is so heavy. I think about being a mother who is, um, you know, multicultural, because I am, and I'm proud of it. Um, but whenever I'm driving with my kids, often by myself, whenever Bernard is traveling or he's gone somewhere, I think about um, making sure that my wallet, I have my, um, my insurance, I, I keep it up high. It's in the visor. My wallet is right here and I keep it unzipped. Um, my cell phone, I keep in my purse if I'm not on it with the headset but I think about um, making sure that if I get pulled over, everything is in plain sight so that um, I'm gonna be okay. Because there have been times, I, I work late, I travel a lot, and I, 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 it's, it's a reality, I hate to say it, but it's a reality. Even though that my husband is a federal judge, it doesn't matter. My position doesn't matter. Our community service, none of that matters. Because at the beginning and end of the day, people see my race first and they're always going to see my race first. And race is always going to matter. And I didn't ask to be the race that I am or the, the, the mixes of races that I am. I love my race, I'm proud of who I am, but it's always going to matter. And I think about these things constantly, they keep me up. So it's a, it's, I had to just weigh in about you talking about what you deal with in your role as a, as a professional, as a mother. You talk about what you deal in and, and, and being, you know, a person of color. And so I feel like it, you know, I think about all of those things. And it is heavy. It is very heavy. I want to now shift to um, your thoughts on how do you fit into your community? Um, are there places within your community where you um, do not feel like you fit? Or, um, you know, where you don't feel welcome? I'm going to talk about that. Yeah, so... Um, one of the pieces that I think 
is important to remember is that there's not really such thing as the Jewish community. There are lots and lots and lots of different Jewish communities. Um, and that has to do with religious observance. It has to do with culture. It has to do with uh, nationality, with all kinds of stuff. And so I grew up Vered Avisar in Simi Valley, California. That is not the typical name for people in Simi Valley, California. It's a very Israeli name. And I'm one of more than a dozen first cousins, only one of two who was raised outside of Israel. When I'm in Israel, I am as American as American comes, right? I'm, it's so obvious. But I carried for the first half of my life so far, um, it'll be less than half of my life eventually, um, <laughs> I carried this name that had with it where if people saw it written down, they made assumptions about the length, because outside of Los Angeles, right, the language that I spoke or things that I knew that were not true for me. And it's a really strange feeling of having a foot in two different places. And I remember very consciously the time period in which I decided that I am going to live in the United States for the duration of my foreseeable life. And I'm not actually going to move to Israel, where at one time in my life I thought that I would. So there are times when I feel like I most certainly don't fit in, in a milieu where people assume that I do. And the same is true for a small time in my life. I lived a, what's in the Jewish community called a traditionally observant life. So um, more traditionally religious observances than what I do now related to how I observed the Sabbath, to what I ate, to how I dressed. Um, and yet I didn't fully fit in there because my family is completely assimilated. Well, I shouldn't say completely, I don't want to insult them, but um, I had separate dishes in my mother's home so that I could have dishes where pork wasn't served on them until I moved out on my own. And yet I never fully fit in with the Orthodox world because my family wasn't Orthodox, and so that made me other. Um, and then when I entered into the world that I'm in now, it took me more than 10 years to feel comfortable saying that I was a reformed Jew because that label and I am in the religious affiliation that I'm in because of informed choice because I know about the vast possibilities within Judaism as a religion and I chose to narrow it to where I am now and that makes me even different than many of my colleagues who have been raised within Reform Judaism and are in religious leadership roles because they love Reform Judaism, but don't necessarily know much about other expressions of Judaism or what it's like to live those. So for me, there's a lot of going in and out of circles of feeling like I fit in and feeling like I don't. So in terms of Jewish community, where I feel like I fit in the most, 
is with other people who have consciously chosen to observe religion, a Jewish religion, how they observe it. Similar to ways that I have chosen. And a lot of times that means that I'm um, with people with really interesting diverse backgrounds, Jewishly and not Jewishly, but who have found their way to this space where I feel like, oh, I, I get that person or I feel like they get me. But there's a lot of spaces within Jewish community where I feel like eh, the puzzle piece, you know, that doesn't quite fit together, feel a little off. So do you feel like there's more spaces in the Jewish community that you fit into or there's, there's less of those spaces? Oh, that's interesting. Um, probably more that I not necessarily fit into, but where I feel comfortable because there are certain things that I don't have to explain, right? So, so even if in my day-to-day -day life this might not be, a community might not be the best fit or people or whatever, there's a lot of explaining that I don't have to do just because somebody else is Jewish, period. And so I'd say more where I feel connected. I was told to make it quick. Um, the um, one thing that's unique about the Black Key, uh, and I, I think I can speak to this because I've lived uh, around the nation and I've spent time in a lot of black communities. Black communities are the same. I mean, I, you, you could drop into the south side of Chicago or drop into the northeast side, and, and this culture is similar. Uh, the people you meet, the challenges that we have, um, it's a very similar community. I'm not saying it's monolithic, but I'm saying it's, it's, it's similar. Um, do I fit? Um, you know, I'm a private school boy. I went to public school for about two years and uh, got bullied. Uh, Mama, daddy said, now nah, we gotta take you up out of there. You ain't gonna learn a thing. And, um, and so my experience growing up uh, was very multicultural. Although I lived in the inner city, I, was, uh, I took three buses out to the suburbs. And so, um, and I, I got green eyes. Uh, I was on the bus stop um, one morning in Milwaukee, uh, and some guy, this black guy, he was, you know, he was going off about white people. And I was just sitting there. I, I must have been about seventh grade or something like that. And he was really upset. He was going off. And then he looked at me, and he said, you ain't black. <laughs> and so I slowly walked down to the next bus stop. Uh, <laughs> But that idea of even being, um, you know, a person had nominated me to be on a panel for a, um, this initiative for black males here in the city. And if one person replied, why would we do that? And the person said, what do you mean? She said, Michael's biracial. I don't even know what that means. But even if I was biracial, I still would be living the black experience, right? My kids are biracial. But the reality is, because of those sort of um, 
accusations and um, in the in the view of who is authentically black in our community um, makes me f- not fit in. Not in all circles, but in some circles. Um, I can tell you something about the black community here. We've been honest tonight, right? Okay. Black community is not very welcoming here. If you're from the outside, they will tell you you are transplant. Okay? I'm going to be honest. You don't understand what's going on here, Michael. We appreciate your input, but listen. I was born and raised here in the Northeast. I had to tell a woman that was telling me that I didn't understand. I said, look at me. I said, don't I look like you? (laughs) You don't understand. The challenges that we face, we face them in all the communities throughout the United States when it comes to black. There are many spaces as a black person that I don't fit into. 90% of the spaces I go each and every day I don't fit into because 90% of those spaces are white spaces. And if the next time you're in your spaces, look around and see how many people of color are there. And then I want you to ask yourself this question, how does that make that person of color feel? And I'll close off by saying this. I was giving this, uh, a speech at a Rotary Club, and when I got done, the uh, president of the club got up. She's a white female. And she got up and she said, I agree with Michael. She said, let me give you a little story. When I was at OU, I took an African-American class, history class. She said, I just wanted to take it. She said, when I got there, I was the only student. And then slowly but surely, students started coming in. And I noticed that they were all people of color. And she said, man, I started feeling so uncomfortable. And she said, then I realized just how people of color feel each and every day of their life. She had an epiphany. So spaces, there's very few spaces that I feel comfortable, welcome, part of. I think that's all the time we have for right now. So folks, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. Uh, start, is we starting any, any, anywhere? I think... Uh, a brother here. Okay. Got buffet style. Eat. Uh, don't eat too much because we want to answer some of your questions. We want you to eat a lot because there's a lot of food. <laughs> but no, well, we want to thank uh, Rabbi and, and, and Michael for um, sharing. We will come back later, in a little bit, not much later, um, because we, do, or we are going to keep you on time. But now we encourage you to go ahead and get food. Um, and then go ahead and continue to converse at your tables. If you have questions, go ahead and leave those, and Brandon will accept those or pick those up. And then when we come back for the Q&A section, we'll actually answer some of the questions that you have. Thank you. Oklahoma Humanities Brain Box podcast uses the humanities to take listeners on a deep dive into the issues affecting American society and culture. Join some of Oklahoma's most interesting and knowledgeable humanities scholars to explore how history, literature, ethics, philosophy, and other humanities fields inform our understanding of current events and the human experience. And to find the Brain Box podcast, simply search Brain Box podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Google Play, and any other podcasting library. If you have any ideas or comments rattling around in your noggin, email us at brainbox at okhumanities.org.
This is Koresh Ali, Lansana, poet, author, educator, and Oklahoma. And when I listen to podcasts, I'm on that one mic, one voice joint. We hope everybody is having a great time and we encourage you to um, continue eating and enjoying the food. There's plenty, so please make sure that if you want more food that you help yourselves to it. Um, We have some questions and we are most appreciative for those who took their time to write down questions. And so we know we said we would be done by 7.30. We got a little behind, but... We're going to go ahead and start with our question, our Q&A session, and then um, for those who need to leave, we just invite you to do so whenever you have to, but you're certainly welcome to stay throughout, you know, through the entire Q&A portion. So um, we're going to go ahead and get started with um, the questions that we have. This one is, how do you talk to your kids about labels? Michael, after Trayvon Martin was murdered, did you talk to your son about wearing a hoodie? How do you act, oh, and how to act if you're pulled over by a police officer while driving? Uh, always a very good question. Uh, we had that conversation way before Trayvon. Um, let me say this. Um, it, it did hit home, uh, and me and my son did have a conversation about it, uh, but my kids from a very early age, I spoke to them about race and about the challenges that race brought to them. Uh, I never told my son not to wear a hoodie uh, because I wanted him to be himself and to do what he felt he needed to do. But he also knows what to do when the cops pull him over. Um, He knows how to respond in situations where um, maybe there's a lot of black people and the cops show up. Uh, One thing throughout history, vagrancy laws were always part of black culture where black people could not assemble together and if they were, they were put in in jails. So very much so we understand the, um, the problem with hanging out with one another in public. So these conversations that likewise, I'm sure most families don't have to have with their kids. Um, But I've always felt, and I think my parents, um, for good reason, coming from the South, my father was from Arkansas, my mother was from Mississippi. I think they wanted to shield me and my brother from race. And so race was not really talked about in my home. And it did something for me in a sense. It made me so naive and, and, um, and I didn't hold things against people. They taught me to treat everybody the same and respect everybody. So that helped me, but it made me ill-prepared for what I had to face in the world. And I never forget, for analytical purposes, I hope I don't offend anybody with this word, but for analytical purposes, I think it's important. The first time I was called a nigger, I was in um, I was in high school, and I was on the bus stop, and some white young man rolled by in the car, and they yelled it, and I was confused. I said, "What did, did they just say? Did they just say what?" And uh, and so I was confronted with race, 
in a way that I was unprepared for. So I guess what I'm trying to say to your question is, yes, I had that conversation very bluntly with my son and my daughter. And matter of fact, they could take this seat and probably tell you the same things that I'm saying. They are very much aware of race and the challenges that they face as individuals. Thank you. Barrett, how do you talk to your girls when an anti-Semitic incident happens to them? So first, some examples of what anti-Semitic incidents look like for my high school daughters, or previously high school and now high school daughter. Heil Hitler in the hall. Swastika prominently displayed in, a, in the cover of a binder by another student in the class who just wants to assert his ability to draw a swastika and prominently show it to the Jewish kid in class. Um, jokes about gas chambers and the Holocaust. Incidents where anti-Semitic and anti-Jewish statements are made but are followed up with, well, it's just a joke. And an underlying current that because this goes back to the labels, because you look white, because you live in a middle-class home, because you are getting a decent education, because you are not hungry, because, because, clearly you're not suffering. So we can make these jokes because anti-Semitism is not really a thing today. I mean, look at how, quote-unquote, successful the Jews are. So um, I have encouraged my daughters to enlist the assistance of adults. Sometimes that has gone exceedingly well, and sometimes it has been met by teachers who say things like, well, I didn't hear it, or, well, your daughter seemed to be holding her own just fine, with no follow-through. When things happen on a national scale, for instance, um, the shootings and the murders that have taken place um, over the last year in synagogues or the vandalism and the destruction that has gone on um, in Jewish cemeteries and at other Jewish houses of worship and communal gathering spaces, I'd say that we end up talking about that less one-on-one -on -one and more in the communal context of how we deal with it communally because my daughters are involved in the Jewish community. So, for instance, after the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue um, and we had a vigil at the temple, my daughters sat and helped to prepare for that. And I think that that's part of the therapeutic process of saying communities coming together and we're here for one another. But the individual acts that it seems that people who, in, that I've had more trouble finding that there are allies who are not Jewish, although there are, and I am appreciative 
that's been real eye-opening for me. Um, adults in power who don't want to have to deal with it and children who, and children, right? I mean, yeah, they're in high school, but they're children. Children who don't think it really matters because the Jews are somehow a caricature, not actually the living, breathing human being who's sitting next to you and has feelings. Considering the history of prejudice against both of our communities, I'm surprised that we are not closer. What are your thoughts? I mean, it's a great comment. Um, that's why we're doing this, um, at least from my perspective, that um, somehow, I don't know, I, I haven't had the opportunity to dive into uh, what happened and what separated us, but um, I'm glad that we're taking this initiative I don't think it's important on what separated us. It's important on how we come back together. And uh, I'm very excited. Um, and when Rabbi approached me about this idea and she began to share things with me. And, and by the way, I, I, I kind of have become like a, I don't know, Paul had a thorn, but uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I Stalker. I, <laughs> a rabbi stalker, probably. <laughs> Yeah, I ran her down. In a nice way, okay? In a nice way. In a good way. It's a good way. It's not bad. She gave um, the invocation at um, the History Center for um, Martin Luther King Day Parade. And when I heard her speak, I knew uh, I needed to get to know her. And so I literally ran her down in the parking lot and got her information. <laughs> and we have been friends ever since. And, uh, and I'm so thankful for her. And so I think it's, it's, uh, it's a testament to her vision and a, a vision I have come to believe in and um, that we move, we move closer together and, and, and fulfill uh, that particular statement, um, which was just, just mentioned. And I think that answers, in light of tonight's conversation, what commonalities do you recognize between the lives or experiences? We kind of touched on that. What are the next steps in building solid core relationships between black Americans and Jewish Americans? In other words, where do we go from here together? So, um, by the way, I have been very, very grateful for that chasing me down in the parking lot. The introvert in me could not be happier in all seriousness because you have given me so much in honesty and, and openness, vulnerability, and helping me to understand aspects of the communities in which you walk that I simply wouldn't otherwise be able to, to learn from. I think that where we go from here, for me at least, is deepening where we are. And with the knowledge of some of the things that happened that did separate our communities, um, part of which was paternalism, frankly, on the part of the Jewish community. I think that it's really important for us to just get to know each other. And that's part of why, with the what keeps you up at night question, part of why I wanted to talk about what keeps me up just as a mom and just as a woman and just 
not that those things are separate from being Jewish, but the idea of there's so many circles in which we are moving that we need to be able to see each other and hear each other as who we are, not as the labels that we're carrying. That's why I'm really excited in January, in January, um, we're hoping to continue with a four-part dialogue that will really focus on breakout groups and people who are interested in having conversation, not listening to us talk, but moving into breakout groups and small group sessions to talk to each other, for people to tell their own stories to one another. And we're looking at that being a four-part series, very guided and very intentional for people who want to learn from each other to deepen our relationships and our understanding so that we have um, a foundation for where do we move from there. So along those same lines, what can older generations do to motivate younger generations within the Jewish and black African-American communities to work together, maintain strong relationships with each other, and be concerned with each other's issues? What are your thoughts? Or do you have any? I think that the older generation, the generation, including myself in that, I guess, in a way, you know, you read all these articles about people don't know what to do with their grandmother's china because the younger generation doesn't want china. Kind of breaks my heart. Older generation needs to be throwing dinner parties and inviting their diverse group of people together for intentional conversation to use manners and, <laughs> and, and to say that, that we want to have conversation and turn the phones off and leave them at the door. And, and for us, for those of us who feel like we're in a position and a time in our lives where we are open to and we do want to talk to each other, to invite younger generation into that conversation and to model it. We want to stay true to our word. We're at 740. Um, I have a few more questions. Okay, we'll be quick quick with these because I just want to make sure that everybody who took the time to write a question that we are responsive. Um, we'll be quick. You know, we'll answer these pretty quickly. Um, Rabbi, the intersection of your gender and your position as religious leader, how accepted are women in leadership positions in the Jewish community? Here's something not to say to a rabbi. Oh, a skirt and boots. I've always thought that was a sexy look. <laughs> At a Shiva minion. Don't, don't say stuff like that. <laughs> Just don't. What? Um, I can laugh about it now. It was a long time ago. I think that the Jewish community, like all communities that have been adapting to women in positions of leadership, has been learning and is continuing to learn. That includes the women in those positions of leadership and reflection on my own challenges of what I bring into my position that are um, biased and framed by my experiences, like that one, um, 
But it's also, it's a community working together that deeply believes in egalitarianism and equality between men and women. And just as we deeply believe in this conversation, and I'm going to say stupid things, and I'm going to put my foot in my mouth sometimes, that doesn't mean that I don't believe in the conversation. And so that means that in my position as a woman in the Jewish community, I have to laugh about certain things, and I have to shrug certain things off, and I have to learn when to draw those lines. And in a conversation like this, I hope that that graciousness extends so that we can say the wrong thing sometimes, but believe in why we're saying it or why we're having the conversation. Thank you. Three more questions. <laughs> Thank you all for hanging in there um, with us. And for those, again, that need to leave, we will not be um, upset. We, we, we will understand. Having grown up in Oklahoma City in the mid-late 80s, I was bused via Oklahoma City Public Schools and feel that being around other cultures has helped me in my life. Do you feel that lack of diversity in OKCPS or any other public school system has contributed or does contribute to the lack of tolerance or rather respect of the differences in others? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I completely agree. Lack of experience is a lack of knowledge. Ta-Nehisi Coates writes, there is no such thing as race, that it is a concept created to justify division and many other anti-human actions. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, I, I, I guess I can start off by saying that I'm kind of intrigued about the novelty around Coates because I think Coates is not writing about anything that people haven't read about for generations, W.E. Du Bois and West and others. But anyway, uh, that's my own personal thoughts. But... Um, yeah, I mean, race is a social construct. Nobody can deny that. Uh, and it has been used to subjugate and so forth. Um, but I, 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 I think Coates leans too far in to say that if you just dismiss the concept, you're okay. I think it is our reality. It's the framework in which this country has been built. Laws have been created based upon a systemic system. And so unless you address the systemic system, which is based in race, based in class, right? Um, then you cannot dismantle it. So yes, we can say race is a social construct. Yeah, a lot of things are. Um, but that gets us nowhere. I think we have to go further to say, um, how do we dismantle these systems? The criminal justice system, for instance, um, even uh, the corporate America system, which is based upon uh, racial hiring practices. So how do you dismantle those things? To say it's simply socially constructed is, I wouldn't, I agree completely, but it gets us nowhere. And the second part of that question is seen on a bumper sticker, racism, our national disease, getting sick was not our fault, getting well is our responsibility. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I think. Um, Who's sick? Getting sick is not our fault. Who's sick? Is uh, is the country sick? Are we are we looking at the the original sin of America uh, in a philosophical sense? Um, I, I agree. It's our it's our um, 
I think the sickness lies in those who harbor racist views. I think it's a disease. I think racism is a disease. I think it's pathological, racism is. To hate someone that you simply do not know is not normal. <laughs> I mean, let's just be honest. Okay, it's, it's pathological. And so that's a sickness in itself. Um, those of us who have been victims of that sickness, it's not our fault. I, I'm not. I mean, if you have a cold, I'm not sick. Right? If you need cough medicine, I don't need it. Right? If, if you need the doctor, I don't. So this country needs a doctor. This country needs to be healed of this illness. And, um, and yes, are we, are we part of the solution? You know, it kills me when people say to me, what, you know, people say, well, what should I do as a, a liberal white person to make a difference? And I say, I don't know. I didn't create the problem. I don't benefit from that privilege. You do. So why don't you figure out what you need to do, right? I mean, it's not, racism is not my issue. I'm, I didn't create racism. I'm a victim of racism, right? And so to think that I'm going to be the savior that alleviates that which I did not create, I think is foolish, right? I'm not a lawmaker. I'm not making decisions on Capitol Hill, right? I'm not saying make America great again. So I think we need to be careful about who we place the onus on making a change in this country. And people say, well, what should I do? I say, black folks have been talking to you for 400 years. What do you mean what you should do? It's all written down. It's codified. It's codified. So the question is, I guess more, is how do we get to a point where we can solve some of these things? What does that mechanism look like, right? Other than simply we all need to, like, change things. Do you like the question? Do, do you get some version of this question? Why do people, Rabbi, I just want to know, why do people hate the Jews so much? Do, do you get that? Like, I mean, obviously, yeah, no, no, they don't ask you why people hate the exactly. Jews. But I, I, I love that question. It's like, I, I don't know. Um, ask someone who yeah, yeah. does, because I don't hate the Jews, and I don't know how to answer that. And our last question, this, is, this has been so interesting and just, it's, it's been good to um, get the audience's reactions to kind of our earlier conversation, but this is the last question. In the early 1960s, I was a member of the National Council of Christians and Jews where we talked openly about race, equity, differences, and commonalities. In the 1970s, I led workshops on diversity in the professional engineering industry, Honeywell. In the mid-70s, um, I was the director of Equal Opportunity. I oversaw Title IX mandates of equity in secondary education, in particular, Pittsburgh State University. Now, 40 years later, here we are in Oklahoma discussing the same issues. Wow. How do we prevent ourselves from watching history repeat itself despite the national rhetoric? 
So 40 years, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just kind of jump in and then Michael. 40 years isn't that long. I mean, 400 years of slavery and prejudice that this current moment is built on, or looking at, depending on when you date it, you know, the years of anti-Jewish and anti-Semitism in the world, 40 years is not very long. And I think that what we have here is a question of where do we want to go in the very, very long expanse of human history that we are currently making. So we have to think about this as, first of all, how long do we want this current nation, which we both all, you know, love the idea, how long do we want this nation to last? Because it's not very old, this nation. So another 400 years of growth, maybe this moment is the pivot moment. Maybe now is when we can start changing the past 400 years to the next 400 years. But that's how I think about it, is this very long history of humanity that goes on way beyond this moment. And our conversation maybe hasn't changed drastically, but it has changed, maybe in little bits and pieces. And maybe one of the places where it's changed is our willingness to talk more about the pain and our willingness to talk more about how we are affected as individual humans in the difficulties that have been created up to this point. And maybe that's a place where we pivot. No, I, I, I agree with, with Rabbi, and I think uh, the question um, speaks to um, how long um, people have been taking stabs at trying to solve some of these very important issues. Um, I would echo that it is different because the time is different, the people are different, and the opportunity is different. And uh, all of us have um, no input on what happened or even what happened within the time frame of this uh, individual and the great work that they did. Uh, our opportunity is now. The question is, what will we do with that opportunity? We can say things never worked here or there, but what will we do, right? And I think um, I always close the show, up, show out by saying, and I won't do it tonight, but I'll just pray a little version of it, that um, history will speak of us, that somewhere in the distant future, a scribe will reach down deep into the archives of our time, and what will she find? Will she discover that we overcame our differences? Will she find that out of many we became one? Or will she find that we solved nothing and remain a divided peoples? You see, someone somewhere will reach down on this moment. And hopefully a question like that will not come. Maybe this is our challenge, right? That that question will never come 
to a generation after us. Why? Because we acted, right? Because we acted. I want to thank both of you for um, being open and honest, and I want to thank you all for being so such an incredible audience um, and for being so um, you know you, attentive. And these questions were um, impactful and really, you know, makes us all think about what, what is my role? What, what part do I have um, in, this, in, in, in what we both face in, in our communities? You know, what commonalities are there? How can we move forward? I mean, we think about all these things. And so I appreciate both of you. Um, this was Rabbi's idea. We've been working on this for the past eight months. It's been a while. Um, so to see it come to fruition is, is really nice. And so um, as she shared, we plan to continue, um, you know, this platform wherein, I mean, it'll be a little bit different, but hopefully we'll, you know, invoke some meaningful dialogue amongst, amongst groups um, over dinner definitely over dinner, and we will be sharing more information about that um, after the new year. So thank you so much for being here. I am going to ask um, our amazing caterers, um, the faculty house, for those of you who didn't recognize some of the, the dishes, but I did ask them to bring some to-go containers because we have so much food. So I would definitely encourage you to take some with you. Um, please, please, don't, don't, don't leave this food here to just go, you know, go to waste. So we appreciate you um, for being here. I hope you have an amazing night and safe travels. I was just going to say that is a commonality between the communities. There's always a lot of food. <laughs> thank you. And, and yeah, last and not least, I'd like to thank Langston for hosting us, VP for having us and moderating. You did an amazing, amazing job tonight. Thank you so much. And I'd like to thank uh, Black and Studios. Um, Back in the room there, uh, my good friend that did all the recording. You didn't see his face, but we'd like to thank all the studios We can make a difference if we try. We can be the change that's in our life. All we gotta do is work together. We gotta raise our children better We gotta stop the hate, stop the hate And spread the love One mic, one voice You can change the world, it's your choice One mic, one voice You can change the world, it's your choice One mic, one voice You can change the world, it's your choice One mic, one voice you can change the world, it's your choice, your choice. Thank you for downloading the One Mic, One Voice show. This episode is brought to you by Blacken Studios. To learn more about Blacken Studios, go to blackenstudios.com. 
or visit their Facebook page. The views and opinions of the One Mic, One Voice podcast show do not reflect the views of Black & Studios or our other sponsors.